since the second half, really, how much they've really struggled. Charles with finding some stability from this. Welcome back to the next episode of the journey of a grassroots rugby coach. And today I'm speaking with Merlin Gabe O'Donnell. This is another two-part episode as we had quite a long chat around development of players, coaches, pathways, and a whole heap of other things around coaching. Um, Merlin works in sports development and has previously worked with England Rugby as a community rugby coach. He's currently one of the under-15 DPP league coaches for Harlequins in the UK, where he's currently in his sixth year with the club. In a former role as the director of rugby at Wybridge Vandals, Merlin established a player pathway to help transition young players into senior rugby, and that created the club's first under-21s team. He's previously had coaching roles that included the lead coach for Surrey Rugby, developing player programs, and head of varsity rugby at an American school based in England. He's also worked as a performance analysis for London Welsh and for Welsh women while studying sports coaching and performance at the University of South Wales. In this episode, we talked about having a blend between player-led and coach-led training. What gives your team energy and what takes it away? And being able to adapt training games to suit players' abilities and how a lot of coaches are designing sessions not to develop players but to prepare them for the next game. I hope you really enjoy this episode as I got a lot out of it, so I hope that you do too. It's probably one of the biggest mistakes I see with junior rugby when I go to observe sessions or help out is sessions aren't uh, designed with development in mind. So much, it's it's preparation for the game on, on the weekend. So you've got these young guys who are just taking part in sometimes two-hour training sessions, which is just too long. I don't understand two-hour training sessions at all. Um, particularly with the, these young guys who play so much sport already. And then what's being delivered as well. It's just preparation. There's not a lot of, there's no, I would say, coaching. There may be a little bit here and there, but they're not really making decisions. And the amount of unopposed run team run-throughs I've seen at Colts level, and it's just, they're preparing for a game at the, week, at the weekend. They're not actually trained to get better. And the amount of guys I've, I've coached who've got into senior rugby and you're sort of having to strip it all back and start again with them. Yeah. Um, that's a challenge I would say to junior coaches is, are you preparing them for where they're going to go? I mean, that's the that's the biggest thing is, you know, where, where are these guys going to be in five years' time? Are you coaching for that, coaching these guys for the future? Um, and it, it's crazy how many teams I've seen who are just so focused on winning at Colts level. And then we wonder why we're seeing this huge dropout when we, we transition these young guys into senior rugby. It's because we're not preparing them well enough. Yeah. All right, Merlin. So let's make a start. Um, great to have you on board, mate. Really appreciate your time. Um, just for the listeners, mate, just 30 seconds in a nutshell, who you are, where you are at the moment, and what's your involvement with rugby, grassroots coaching, all that type of stuff. Uh, yeah, so uh, I used to work for England Rugby as a community rugby coach uh, sort of 18 months ago. And before that, uh, I was a director of rugby at a rugby club called Weybridge Vandals. 
done a bit of school coaching. Uh, I was a performance analyst for a year at London Welsh when they were still a professional side. Um, uh, I went to University of South Wales and did a degree in sports coaching. And uh, right now I'm actually challenging myself in a different sport. I'm working as a club and community development officer uh, for the Bowls Development Alliance and sort of exploring, uh, starting a, exploring different sports and the challenges that they're facing um, in terms of uh, development, uh, which has been really, yeah, it's been really interesting to see that yeah, going to a sport where I have absolutely no prior knowledge of and sort of being that naive expert in the room, uh, you know, challenging things and why, why do you do these things? Um, and how can we make them better and what can we learn from other sports as well? So uh, enjoying that challenge um, and enjoying a little bit of time out of uh, rugby and uh, now just getting back into it. Yep, and we'll get into some of that stuff as we go through, mate. So that's really good. Um, so what got you into, into your rugby coaching um, to start with? So I, uh, my first memory of coaching was actually when I was at college and I got asked by our um, college head coach to coach the women's team. Uh, my knowledge of the time, we didn't have one and it was pretty much a, a group that wants to get together to play a tournament. So I coached them for a couple of sessions before a uh, sevens tournament and it, it, it was loads of fun. And I used it as part of uh, one of the qualifications I was doing at the time at the college. Uh, and that was my sort of first taste of it. Um, and during that period, I didn't know what I wanted to do with my career or what I wanted to do. Uh, and despite that experience, even though I enjoyed it, I didn't want to be a coach. Um, and I took a year off to go to Australia and play at University of Queensland for a bit and definitely enjoyed the social side more than the, the rugby side. So I was definitely grossly unfit. Um, but I had a really good three months and then came back and got into uh, what was the University of Glamorgan and now the University of South Wales on a coaching degree without any real direction of what I wanted to do in sport. I just knew I loved rugby. And the brilliant thing about that was you got to do um, strength and conditioning, performance analysis, the coaching, uh, sort of um, the sports science behind it. So you got a, a whole breadth of different disciplines in sport. And I came out of that uh, wanting to be a performance analysis originally. I did some work with the world's women's team and, uh, and so bits and pieces of the Cardiff Blues in terms of observations in their academy. And I thought, yeah, this is, this is where I want to go in sport. Um, and then funny enough, I finished university and, and couldn't get any placements to do performance analysis and went to a prep school about 10 minutes away from where I lived and uh, was, te uh, you know, in my first week, I think I was coaching basketball, gymnastics and really outside of my comfort zone. I was very much one dimensional rugby and performance analysis. And I got, it was the, it was the best decision I ever made was actually going to a, um, going to a prep school and being a sports graduate and having to assist on PE lessons and the games lessons doing all sorts of sports and working with boys from you know, nursery up to up to 13s. Uh, it was a real steep learning curve. And that's probably the first time I actually started to develop an understanding of how to coach, not just what you coach. And that was a very tough few months 
having a really good session plan and wondering why the kids just misbehaved throughout the whole lesson, uh, <laughs> which they just ran circles around me. Um, so, and I'll, I'll come, come back on to uh, that a bit later because it gave me my best coaching moment. Uh, but after that, I went, I went to London Welsh as a performance analyst because I thought that's what I wanted to do. And it was a brutal year in terms of the work you have to do and the work that goes into each week, to each game and working two weeks ahead of yourself to make sure we're always up to date. And I found out with that year, it just, it wasn't what I wanted to do. It wasn't what I enjoyed. I loved the game, but that performance analysis side, I really found enjoyable. Uh, great in terms of learning, learning stuff for coaching, but the analysis side, it was just, it wasn't for me, which I'm really glad because I was applying to do a master's in performance analysis at the time. So a real critical year um, as an unpaid intern doing analysis. So from there, I decided to give coaching a go. And I should have mentioned, I had to stop playing during this process because I kept dislocating my shoulder. And uh, after surgery, it came out again and I got picked up by an old coach of mine who was in my previous role was my, was my boss. And he got me down just to do some casual coaching to keep me in the game and just started slowly falling in love with it and um and, and then it just went from there really just started coaching in in more schools and the the club where i was coaching with him at he he eventually left at the end of the season and i took over as director of rugby at 25 which was uh interesting it didn't go down well with everyone definitely experienced okay. some i could imagine <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> i had the players but uh yeah definitely the old guards weren't so keen of a 25-year-old coming in as director of rugby. Um, but it was needed because I could see just all the gaps and things we had to do at the time. Um, so I guess in answer to your question, uh, partly through experience, finding out that actually what I thought I wanted to do, I didn't. And also through injury, I couldn't play anymore. So that that time I opened up to, to coach and stay in the game. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and we've had a few guys on that. Um, got into coaching early through injuries um, and then others like myself sort of played one or two years longer than we should have and then got into coaching. Um, so with the stuff that you've done, what's one of the biggest heartaches or disappointments that you've had as a coach? Um, and the reason I ask this is because we've all had them and they're probably all really similar, but for it, a young coach, and when I say young coach, I mean like a new, a new coach, an inexperienced coach. That can be the moment where you just go, "No, nah, that's it. I'm, I'm done. I, I don't know what to do." And they and they walk away. Where if they can get people to go, you know what? This has happened to me. This has happened to this guy. Blah 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 blah. Might keep them in the game. Yeah, absolutely. And I always share you know, sort of vulnerabilities around my mistakes in coaching because it's so, it is so valuable. And I could have, I could have really done with that. And at times when I was at my lowest, yeah. um, I think the first immediate one that comes to mind was it was actually my second season um, at Weybridge Vandals. Uh, I had all these uh, incredible players. Um, and we, we got relegated the season before. Uh, we just didn't have a squad to stay in our league. We just didn't have a big enough squad, enough strength and depth. And we used that season as just a training season 
each each game was just like a, another opportunity to get better. Let's not sweat about the result. Um, and we had challenges within those league matches as well, linked to our training. And I was looking very sort of two, three years down the line because we had some young Colts who were coming through as well. Um, and in our and into that second season, we're in a league that we should be aiming to win it or at least go up and get promoted. And the first half of the season was so mixed. The performances were up and down and we were losing games against opposition without any disrespect that it was just sort of, this doesn't make sense. We've got some players here who should actually be playing in the national leagues. Mm. Why, why have I got to this point with this group of players where they're not performing on the pitch? And I really felt that responsibility. And it was the first time I actually felt pro properly alone in my coaching. And I felt it was solely on me. And I remember one game we played at home where we put out our strongest team I think I've ever seen during my time at the club. And we lost. And at the end of the game, I had a wobble and I spoke to one of the experienced guys who was out injured. And he's been there, seen it, done it all before, won previous leagues um, years before. And I said, I asked him, I said, do you believe I, I'm the right person to lead this team? Because I'm starting to struggle here. And actually, it's, do the players believe I'm the right person to lead this team? I asked him, and he put his arm around me and went, don't be, don't be silly, mate. Of course, you're the right person. Yeah, I actually really needed that at that moment yeah. uh, to share that vulnerability with a senior player to, because I'm one of those, I'm, I'm happy to take a step back. I don't want to be, you know, just sort of massaging my own ego to lead a team. If it's the right thing to do, it's the right thing to do. Um, and at that point, I was doing my level three uh, and I had a mentor in John Bates who was incredible. And I also had an informal sort of mentor in Warren Abrahams as well. And I learned on those two massively. Um, so the following week, uh, John came down to view one of my sessions. And it's one of my biggest learnings um, ever. And I think about it all the time and all the sessions I do. It's around uh, freedom and player-led uh, training. And what I, what I did was sort of, I was too one way on the continuum. It was too player-led. It was too sort of laissez-faire, too sort of, chuck the ball around, there was loads of errors and the feedback, we had feedback within, in terms of the games they were doing. So sort of implicit feedback through the constraints of a game, but there wasn't a lot of explicit feedback. So what, what I had done in adversity was create an environment where yeah, the players led it, but there wasn't feedback. So it was too one too one sided. So the players were making lots of errors, but they weren't recognizing it themselves. So they just saw it as, yeah, it's freedom, it's playing. And actually they weren't getting better. I was just creating an environment where they got to practice poor, poor behaviors and errors. And as soon as I saw it, it was a real eye opener um, for someone to show show it through a different lens and understanding that it's you can't be just fixed on this continuum there are times when you have to potentially be more prescriptive and there's times where you actually want to be you know stand back and let the players lead a little bit more it really is a blend um so from then on it was looking at our how we design sessions and ensuring we had feedback within the constraints of the game linked to our behaviors onto the pitch and that could be from simple stuff in terms of ball presentation to work off the ball so, for example, if we saw a ball, ball presentation or you know, people not realigning off the ball well enough, it would just be a turnover. And that's really simple um, 
at a simple level, but it was really effective. And then ensuring that we had explicit feedback in terms of coaches giving feedback to players in the moment where, where there was an error. Was it a decision-making error? Was it a skill error? And ensuring that player had that feedback and knew the difference and then knew how to get better at it and felt empowered to actually get better. Uh, I've worked really hard on working on co-coaching with my assistant coach as well and how we could actually work together to create a better environment for these players. And it, it didn't happen overnight. Uh, we did we did have a successful uh, uh, win our following fixture, but then it was still inconsistent. But you could see sort of the roots emerging of, uh, of the guys actually putting the, the, what we're doing in training in terms of our positive behaviours onto the pitch. Uh, we actually did a challenge one game in terms of our team battery. So things that take away energy and things that give us energy and how many team battery moments we have in a game. So for example, how do we, how are we going to react from a knock-on? Because that could really suck the energy out of a team, particularly when you're close to the trial line, how do we react? So one of our games uh, during this tricky patch was, right, we need, we're, we, the players set themselves a target of 20 team battery moments in this league match. If they hit 20 or more, I had to go, I think this time it was pizzas off the training on Tuesday, I had to supply a load of pizzas. Um, they hit 20 in the first half. They hit 20 in the first half and it was actually a game that we had to go, uh, there was a serious injury on the, on the opposite team and we had to go play on a, uh, on a junior pitch. So we narrow pitch and there was just no width whatsoever. So you talk about adaptability and team battery moments. I mean, going from a full-size senior pitch to a junior pitch and still playing a league game was pretty tough. And we were the team on the day that just adapted better. But it was it was good to see the guys linking that learning from training in terms of their team battery. And uh, yeah, fair to say I had to buy yeah, a great expense. I had to buy a load of pizzas on Tuesday night for the guys. They achieved it. And that was sort of, that was sort of the starting point of my understanding around uh, player-led practice and my role as a coach to facilitate that and understanding it's not just one place on that continuum. You can't just stay there. You, you know, your behaviours as a coach can't be the same each and every session. They've got to adapt to the needs of the participants. And that was, yeah, that was huge for me. From the lowest to the low, where I wanted to, I thought I was going to quit, to then suddenly you know, coming out of the other side of it with this new knowledge and understanding. Yeah, that's that's really uh, in interesting the way you've put that um, from that really low point to where it is now. Um, and I'm sure a lot of coaches have been in similar mindsets where they've just, like you said, they just don't know, what do I do now? I've lost, have I lost the locker room? You know, and reaching out just to someone else and just go, What's the story, mate? I'm happy to step away if this is not working and just getting that little bit of reinforcement. Like you said, that, that extra set of eyes looking at it um, in a crit, like in, a, in that critical, they're looking at it critically and giving you that really hard feedback of this is what needs to change and, and it changed, yeah. Yeah, massively. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think too, um, and I was horrible at it as a, as a young coach is finding someone that can give me that feedback because you fr you're actually worried about what they're gonna are they gonna tell you that you're shit 
Yeah, yeah, that's fair there. I, I don't want you to tell me that I'm no good, you know, but that might be what you need to hear. Yeah, no, that's, that's, um, I mean, I'm di- way different now, but, but like when you first start, it's just like everything's about getting everything right, I suppose. Um, mm. So we'll swing that around a little bit, mate. What's some of the greatest moments you've had? So I mentioned it at the uh, at the beginning in terms of my coaching journey and where I was going. So that that uh, prep school I went to straight out of univer- uh, university. Um, that's when I, I I reflect back now and I think that's where the first seed of coaching really got planted. It was coaching a um, a PE lesson on basketball, and there was this one kid there who at the time I think we were sort of screening and making note songs we suspected he may potentially be dyspraxic just looking at his fundamental movement skills and his coordination and just seeing how upset he was in this first session because he couldn't make a basket uh we're talking nowhere close and all his mates are making baskets and no one was passing him the ball within games and actually you know I gave him a, a, a different scoring, uh, a different scoring, a uh, different method of scoring, sorry, than everyone else. So for him, if he hit the net, it was 50 points. If he hit the rim, it was 100 points. If he hit the backboard, it was 200 points, something, something along those lines. And then seeing him just graze the net and get those points and his teammates suddenly passing him the ball, someone who would he wasn't actually being excluded because he wasn't very good at this activity, suddenly adapting it for him, but then also not signaling him, you know, sort of not keeping him involved in that team environment and adapting it for, for himself and seeing guys chuck him the ball and work out very quickly. Well, he may not be able to make a hoop, but he could score us points. So he got loads of touches of the ball and was able to shoot. And then from there we were able to tweak it and make it a little bit, um, yeah, start to challenge from there. And I think it was about three weeks later in the warm-up, he made a basket. <laughs> it was a fluke shot. It was. It was one of those that bounced off every, you know, every part of the rim and the backboard and just about went in. But then hit the way he turned and looked and the, the excitement on his face and the look was, you know, that was, you could tell it was his greatest moment in sport. Yeah. Because he's all, yeah, across all sports, he, you know, he struggled and his face lit up and it was like a really powerful moment for me that still resonates now. And I was like, oh, I love this. This is a great feeling. Seeing someone go and achieve something they thought they were never going to achieve from somewhere where they were feeling really low and vulnerable and the impact that would have on him as a, as a kid at that time in, you know, a lesson that I knew he didn't enjoy PE because he wasn't good at it. And then seeing how he reacted from there and then see him go from strength to strength and actually see him in the football season, giving it a good crack as well there and taking that confidence. It was, yeah, that's where I think it started. Um, and it's quite addictive, that sort of moment of supporting someone and seeing him achieve something great. That was definitely my first sort of taste of it really. And that's still up there despite doing quite a lot in rugby. It was actually a, yeah, sort of a year, year four, year five basketball lesson on a cold Monday morning that did it for me. Um, so definitely one of my best, best moments. Yeah. And it's interesting that, that that's, that's one of your moments because a lot of the coaches I've spoken to have all had not necessarily a win, like a, a result, a win. It's always been about this player's done that, or this player's gone on to represent at the next level or, you know, 
I coached this kid when he was 12 and he made a representative team and he saw me and he come over and he's, you know, just those, like you said, those connections and, and the little things. But as, as a, as a young coach, I think we look back and it's all about, we've got to win this and we've got to win that because that's where our next job's coming from mm -hmm. and blah, blah, blah. But now we're at the point and I'm the same now. It's like winning's nice, but, um, you know, and one of the guys at the club we coach here um, has just been called into the Tongan national team. So like, the whole club is just like, oh, mate, this this is all, like 20, 21, 22. Yeah. It's just like, oh, the whole club is just buzzing for this young fella that's just, you know, been picked up from a first division club somewhere. Like he, he left here to play in Sydney last year and now he's been picked up for the Tongan national team. It's just like, mate, that's, that's what you coach players to do is just to take that next step. And, you know, so, yeah, it's, I have I didn't have a lot to do with him. Um, I had a little bit to do with him, but I know some of the other guys, some of the coaches have been there a bit longer than me, mate. They're just like, yeah. It's a common it's a common bit that I see, and particularly during my time at the RFU mentoring coaches, is that we fall away from why we got into coaching in the first place. And I mm. definitely I definitely did and went down that sort of um, results bit, um, focusing on winning or, you know, seeing players with potential and thinking, right, this is my sole focus is to find these players and develop them in terms of the pathway stuff. Um, and we move away about why why we coach in the first place. And then when you realise, you, know, you go back to why, it's, well, I did that for those, for, those, for those moments, for those coaching moments. And if you can align yourself back, um, if you can align yourself back towards that, uh, then you should really find your purpose again. And it's a whole a lot. That's probably why I, th I didn't enjoy uh, my years as an analyst at London Welsh because it was such, it was a performance environment. It was all about winning. Yeah. And I didn't enjoy it. And at the time, I didn't have the experience to sort of reflect back on all the understanding to understand why I wasn't enjoying it. And so it was a very, um, yeah, it was a very sort of difficult time because you feel like there's one thing that I really, you know, really love in rugby. A, I can't play it anymore. And B, I'm just not enjoying it anymore. And I don't know why. Mm. And then when you actually go back to the, what, why was it I first got involved in this game? And why was it the first, why did I get to start coaching it? And you go link back to your why. It's really powerful stuff. And definitely that's, um, I don't think there's a coach out there who hasn't sort of fallen down that, that trap of leaning yeah. towards results. Yeah, exactly. No, that, yeah, I think it's more, you get less results based as you go on, um, unless you're sort of at that, that really elite. Um, oh, massively. And this is probably one of the biggest mistakes I see with junior rugby when I go to observe sessions or help out <clears> is <throat> sessions aren't uh, designed with development in mind so much it's it's preparation for the game on on the weekend so you got these young guys who are just taking part in sometimes two-hour training sessions which is just too long i don't understand two-hour training sessions at all um particularly with the, the these young guys who play so much sport already and then what's being delivered as well it's just preparation there's not a lot of there's no i would say coaching there may be a little bit here and there, but they're not really making decisions. And the amount of unopposed run team run-throughs I've seen at Colts level, and it's just 
they're preparing for a game at the week at the weekend. They're not actually trained to get better. And the amount of guys I've I've coached who've got into senior rugby and you're sort of having to strip it all back and start again with them. Yeah. Um, that's a challenge I would say to junior coaches is are you preparing them for where they're going to go? I mean, that's the that's the biggest thing is you know, where where are these guys going to be in five years' time? Are you coaching for that? coaching these guys for the future. Um, and it, it's crazy how many teams I've seen who are just so focused on winning at Colts level. And then we wonder why we're seeing this huge dropout and we, we transition these young guys into senior rugby. It's because we're not preparing them well enough. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, that's, that's a really good point. What are we preparing them for? I remember more than 10 years ago now, I had a... Um, our family came over from <clears throat> South Africa. And this was back in the days when, you know, if you were 14 and you are good enough, you could play senior rugby and get away with it. Well, you, you can't do any of that stuff anymore. And this this kid was a monster of a kid. Like he was, you know, six foot six. But just if you said pick the 14-year-old in the team, he would be not the first person you'd pick. And his, mm. dad's, his dad said to me, oh, I want him to be a number eight. I went, yeah, no problem. He can go and play on the blindside wing. And we had this big argument over it. I went, mate, first of all, he's, he's 14 and you want him to be a number eight, which is fine. But let him play as a blindside winger. So he learns to read the game. Mm. Like, and he can actually see where the gaps are and where, you know, like blah, blah, blah. And um, that year he went up and he trialed and... Um, as a 14-year-old, made the under-16 Western Force team, you know, and his dad just come back and goes, yeah, that's it. He said, I'm never, ever going to doubt you again. I went, mate, but he's 14. Like, if I put him in there and he gets hurt, I'm responsible. But, it, and he just said he knew he knew exactly where he needed to be because he'd spent so long just watching the game at the back and going, oh, that's where that hole's going to yeah. be. And kid was a phenomenal footy player. It wouldn't have mattered where you played him. But, yeah, just preparing them for... When they get out, when everyone else catches up to them, um, yeah, that's that, you know, that's, you, the, that's the big one. You, you get those kids, you know, in that I don't know, twelve to sixteen year age bracket, and you know, there are a variety of sizes and shapes, and then all of a sudden they all sort of start to level out a bit, and you've got kids that now just don't know what else to do because they can't run over people. Yeah, no. I Never been That's taught how to pass, up. never been taught how to use footwork in a contact, just run over the guy. And now everyone's the same size and they're just like, I can't do it. That's, that's the biggest thing, yeah, re relative age effects and actually understanding. I see, see it all the time. I was on an assessment yesterday, assessing some players and uh, there was a big, big chap there and you could tell he just, his catch pass hasn't been worked on. And obviously at club, he's the battering ram. And you know, he, he ran at one of the smallest guys we went to one of the contact stations and this small guy just chopped him back on his feet and that was sort of game over for him really and it's it's nothing that the that 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 boy has done wrong it's just he hasn't been he just hasn't had the support the coaching or being prepared in terms of yeah he may be successful now on a Sunday but as soon as he goes up that that ladder and starts playing at you know a higher level or just naturally within his age group, he's going to get found out. And it's it's quite common that, you know, overall players aren't being prepared well enough or there's, you know, 
even even the guys who are probably I would say you you sort of summer babies who are a little bit who are smaller and uh, yeah. you know six months behind their their co-parts and they've got you know six months less information than them and how much support they're getting um co- yeah it's something that i think at a grassroots level you need to be really you know, more aware of and how do yeah. we challenge, challenge these guys and every club I, I, i've been to done guest coaching at there's one guy who's the talisman and he's always the biggest he's like the big guy give him the ball and it's how do we challenge him to keep him interested but also serving he, he probably won't see at that time because he's a young kid but how we how were we preparing him for two, three years time? And yeah. if we're one of the biggest failures in grassroots co- coaching. Um, is that play? It's 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 short term, short term. It's a short term approach to winning a game on on Sunday, um, as opposed to actually these guys staying in the sport or falling in love with sport full stop, and staying physically active for the whole lives and giving them the skills to go do that. Um, and coaches being aware of how, how do we actually accommodate this in our session plans and um, what does it look like? What's best practice? How can we get better at it? And then what do the players think themselves? I know this kid yesterday, if I asked him what was probably one thing he wanted to, it'd be interesting if I asked him, actually, it's probably one of my regrets. I should have asked him, what do you think you need to work on? And I can guarantee it's probably catch pass. I don't know. I like to think it would be catch pass. And how many opportunities does he have to, do that at his club um yeah yeah and it's a difficult conversation too because sometimes you you know i do a couple of the um age group stuff here with the rep teams and you get these kids turn up and they go oh, i play this position and you go, no, you go. <laughs> i can see why your coach puts you there because of this this and this but if you want to play it any further than you know what you're doing you need to play in this position or that position you know and the, and half the time the kid's happy it's the parents that you got to convince to let them you know we want this kid to play if you want your kid to play at the best level that he can he can't he can't play there anymore he's got to play here yeah yeah it, it was i saw a thing i don't know whether you saw it or not, it came out today on one of the social media things the guy in new zealand and they're talking about kids' footy and you know, all this stuff and how, especially as coaches, he said he wants to change the KPI for all these junior coaches. And it's not about how many games they win every year. It's how many players do they have come back next year. Yeah. He said, change the KPIs. He said, they're not going to like it. The coaches aren't going to like it until they get used to, you know what, I'm coaching club footy and my role is to get this kid back next year and next year and next year and next year. And I thought, yeah, that's that's that, that's it. That, that's it for me. That that's what my sort of mission statement. If I was in charge of a of an academy or yeah, club or at any level, would be successfully measured where they're at in five years' time. That would be mm. that would be mine. I mean, it's yeah, we've I've coached guys who've gone on to representative rugby, which is great. But I just get as much of a thrill to see the guys who uh, through yeah, one one guy comes to mind instantly. Guys who. Actually, a lot of their their development isn't the tech tack, isn't the um, skills. It's actually the mental development and the social development. And there was one guy who just he was very he struggled with emotional control. Um, lots of you know I'm I'm quitting. I'm not you know I'm not playing anymore to 
annoying his teammates and sort of a bit of a prima donna at times and a good a good rugby player but I would, you know just his social development held him back um and spending a lot of time with him to understand like why why how has he got to this point you know what's his what's the stuff outside of rugby look like and uh, how can we support him best in this environment and uh through these sort of um social development work on each session i remember probably about 18 months into coaching this guy he comes sprinting across the pitch before senior training Get, you know runs up and just so excited saying you know i've got a job i got a job. it's his first job he's ever got um now 18 months ago there is no way this guy's getting high you couldn't he was unreliable always late made up excuses why he wasn't at training or missed games and didn't work well with others and just seeing him, you know, now with this confidence to go off and get his first job and how excited it was, that for me is just as good as someone, you know, getting into, yeah, getting to the Harlequins Academy or getting an age grade cap or something like that. It's, it's exactly the same. It's, um, that stuff is, is amazing because it breaks me when I see guys who, they, they measure, boys always sort of, well, in my experience, experience guys always measure themselves against how good you know how good they are compared to their teammates which is a very dangerous thing to do um and it breaks me when there are guys who just feel like oh you know i'm if i'm needed which is one of my i hate that phrase so much and i had a young guy who uh, we created on the 21s team for these cults who came through and uh he messaged me to say oh um yeah, I'm available to play on Saturday if, if I'm needed. Um, you know, he recently went off to uni, didn't get into the uni team was, and wasn't enjoying his club rugby experience and was very much, you know, I'm, I'm not as good as the others and I, I kind of don't want to get in the way. Um, I, I, you know, I just you know, messaged him back saying, yeah, of course you're needed. You know, it's, you're part of the team. And this is, these are your mates. Of course you're needed. Uh, I started him in that game, you know, stuck him in an open side flanker and just, it's not, and just sort of made him aware of this under under twenty ones team was about this group of players having opportunities to play together as a group again, and they've come all the way through minis. And for me, that you know, getting to a, a final or something like that was just a you know, a bonus. It was all about these guys playing with their mates again because senior rugby, university rugby, representative rugby, it's all going to drag them in different directions. Some guys are actually going to take a break from rugby or decide playing the guitars better than training twice a week and getting beaten up on a weekend. This this team is solely about you guys playing together as uh, as mates, having those opportunities again. And then probably this, you know, obviously there's you know, feeding to the seniors and all the rest of it, but it's not its primary goal. And the amount of times you know, I've had that from players of if I'm needed or oh, if, if you need me, and it's just a caution needed. You know, your mm -hmm. mates are playing, grab your boots, let's, you know, go, go and play. And that's that's the balance at grassroots rugby that coaches need to need to be aware of is how do you challenge the guys who may be on that representative pathway to the guys who are going to be your next uh, your next president, you know, your, yeah. your bar manager, you know, your club captain. Mm -hmm. you, you, you need all of them. You need absolutely all of them. And remember your purpose as a grassroots community club. You are a community club. And it's one thing I 
in my opinion, I don't like community clubs having academies. I think as soon as you start using elitist terms, it can already create that barrier to that guy who's fits that category of if I'm needed. So as soon as you put you know, community club and use the word academy straight away, you're going against your purpose as a club. You know, you're not a professional team. You're not a, an actual professional academy. You're a community club. That is your purpose is to serve the community and all the players within that aspirational to the guys who just want to play with their mates. Um, and I think that's somewhere that community clubs have got lost. Um, again, it's just my opinion. I think academy, you know, it's great that they're providing players for their senior first team, but what about your second, your first, your social? Are we actually growing the game through this through this um, approach at the community level? Probably yeah. not. Um, and particularly looking at numbers, and we're seeing second teams struggling for players or for front row. How much of that is an unintended consequence of, you know, a community club saying, "Well, we've now created an academy." You know, how many you know, how many guys that were gonna join up and play were maybe a little bit, you know, unsure because of the term academy. And I think these, there has been sort of, um, you can see it influences of not only the, the club first team, when you watch the Colts or juniors, you see them doing what the first team do, because that's what their dad see on a Saturday. Um, for no fault of their own, they're just, you know, you know, seeing what they think is best practice or the best thing for the kids and then copying it. Um, but then, you know, but then it's, you know, there's the problem in itself. It's adult practice for kids and it's, it's never going to marry up. Um, and I, I, I think that's probably where we're seeing some of the, the fallout from the community game is the sort of things you see on TV and all the things you see your local first team do being put into kids or age, age grade rugby um, and putting these guys off. Um, I think that's a massive thing that clubs need to remember what their purpose is within their communities. Um, they're not there to be elite. You can certainly be there to promote these aspirational players. Um, 100%. And there is a little bit of that in terms of um, being swayed by that aspirational pathway. So a lot of clubs being, you know, we've got seven or eight guys in the academy. Well, that's great. But if they're any, you know, if they are that good, they're probably going to go on and play for clubs who are, are at a higher level. And then where, where's your senior group then? If you're prioritising mm -hmm. those guys, you are gonna, you're gonna suffer later down the line. Because if they're any good, they're gonna keep going and go to university and clubs in the national leagues, maybe fully professional. And then what are you left with? You know, are you, are you at, is that a sustainable approach for your club? Um, and that, and I think that's a big, I've been in conversations with coaches who are, you know, one of their best players is now going to, going to join a local rival or, or another, another club because they're seen to be the best one in terms of that aspirational pathway. And you know, I'm being asked to actually have a conversation with that player and his parents to keep him at the club. Um, and at that point, if you're asking to have that conversation, are you serving that player's best interests why does he want to leave yeah yeah why does why does he see that to be the best option for that time and i would say to coaches they will always remember how you made them feel they will always remember that and you are just one part of their of their of their journey um but you're not the you're not the deciding factor 
parents are parents uh, and, and close family uh, friends but you're a small yeah you're a part of that but you're not the deciding factor and you know, in my experience we've had players leave leave the club and they've come back in the future you know they've had a go at it they've had a fair crack um, I looked at the team sheet my whole club the other day and there's two players on there that I've had that very conversation with and actually back them to no go play somewhere else go experience it go give it a you know, go give it a shot yeah and now here we are a few years down the line they're back at their club playing well that's that's because you know we you know how we made them feel was actually no that go back that decision it seems like you've got some good reasons there go yeah. and do that and I reckon that's why we've got some jerseys on the wall of players you've played age grade England rugby because we've supported them to go do that. And some of them come back and played some first in games. Some of them may not. Um, some of them may just play for a brief, a brief moment in the club's history. But it's all about supporting players to go achieve what they want to achieve in the game. Whether that's to have a few beers with their mates after a game or to go play the highest level they possibly can. And remembering that they will always remember how you made them feel. Um, and that's something at grassroots, you know, as coaches, we need to be need to be aware of. It's it's not about us. It's it's about them, and what and, and what's and what's best yeah. for them. Yeah, and I think players, the aspirational players, get to a point in, and even professional players will get to a point in their journey, and they'll go, I need to go to that club because of they run a better program, they've got a better whatever coach that can help me develop to the next level. Like they actually do start looking at, well, for my development or where I want to go, I need to go and play, like you said, at that club because they've got this, this and this that these guys can't offer me. Um, mm. And I think, yeah, like if we stifle that at, at grassroots level, it, it will, it probably backfires more than anything else because then the kids get, the, the player's going to go anyway. Mm. And then they just, they just don't come back because they, you know, they got shafted or, you know, bad mouthed or whatever when they left. Instead of just going, yep, you, you, you do what you have to do. There's always a spot. There's always a spot back here if you want to come back and have a run. And, you know, um, yeah, oh, aspirational, aspirational players will do that. Um, that is monstrous. Yeah.